first question that you will be asking if you're listening on Spotify and have telepathic vision is why does Yusuf look more and more like Bert every week? And now it's at the point where I'm just going to rotate my head. Yeah. Like, so when, when I turned on the camera, Johnny was like, are you taking the piss with your haircut? Because it looks like you're actually taking the piss. I don't think it's the sides that look like the piss take. I think it's the length of the top that looks like yeah. the piss take. It looks like you're headed towards like top knot world. Like I remember when, I mean, you're, you, to be honest, have you tried? Let's give it a go. I think I'm too balding to have a good top knot, to be honest. It's just all about the, the central peak, isn't it? I think you can probably do it. Oh, there we go. The, the the main problem is the severity. Like, look at the back of my head. It's the first time anyone online has seen the back of my head, actually. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's... Wow. You've, wow. <laughs> you've gone full, like, Peaky Blinders, haven't you? This is... Have you seen Peaky Blinders? I have. On your recommendation, actually. Have you seen all of it? Not the recent two seasons. I, uh, I watched the final on... Like a week ago, it was quite, quite, uh, quite intense. Is it just about their haircuts getting more and more severe? The haircuts actually get less severe. I think there's probably a bit in the middle. Season like four, it's like right down to the wood on a few of them. Right. With and and Arthur has his hair that like comes. There's like a sheet of it that comes back and sort of like down here, but underneath is actually still shaved. That's the. I see. That, maybe that's what you should aim for. Well, I'm heading that way. Yeah, so the, that. I mean, this is really the the function of when you go for the Kurdish barber twelve pound lucky dip for your haircuts. Because is that what you do? Is it a yeah. lucky dip? You just go. I, I don't mind. Well, you, you do whatever. No, you I mean, I ask for the same thing each time, but you've the barbers have varying levels of English proficiency. So this one didn't speak any English. <laughs> what What do you ask for? What's the like? So I, I asked for a low skin fade. And that looks like a high skin fade to me. Extremely high, and he mm. said, and "As I high said, as it goes, the top." And then he just immediately took a razor to like my crown, and I was like, "Ah, oh, well, Down. that's it." Um, and as soon as it's as soon as that's happened, it's too late, isn't it? Like you can't <laughs> go back. Proper razor as well. I was like, "God, the, you're not even left room for a, for fading. It's just straight in." Because there's so, one there's one rule about haircuts. You can't undo it, can you? Can't stick it back on. You can't yeah. stick it back on. It's an easy, easy mistake to make. That I think you're halfway through and you think, "Oh, it's all right. I'll stick it back on later." And you're like, "Oh, you can't." You, no, irreversible, permanent consequences. I think they're semi-permanent. I think they're permanent for like your your immediate future, but at some point you'll be. You'll be back there again, with faced with the same problem. It's but but it's the same as spending money or time because in a lifetime you've only got so many centimeters of hair that you'll grow. Oh God! And so even if you shave your head today and you go, oh, it's fine, it'll grow back. Like that's still that's a haircut you can't have again. Yeah. So, especially for like, I feel like all men are just on this trajectory of of like, how long can I hold on to my hair for before? I have to just commit to the all-off decision. It's it's brilliant seeing the game of chicken that men approaching 50, 60 start to play, mm. where people shave at different 
levels and some will just try and comb over as hard as they can into their 60s and you're like <laughs> look man just accept it you've gone full bald before haven't you full shaved head yeah did you do it for charity or did you just do it because because piss take i i did it for charity but i think i raised about six pounds or something so not even the cost of the haircut it's, i think it's something i'd recommend to everyone to shave your hair once you give your scalp a break you can then kind of tan your head which is obviously super white when you when you shave mm. it but also you need to know what the shape of your head is so you can just in case prepare yeah i think my my like view on that is like i'll there'll be a time when i do that so i'm not like i'm not in a hurry to try it if you see what i mean like i'm not going to go my entire life without ever doing that so true although i I've feel like hair, the, I'll, the watson, I'll, I'll keep it the watson hair jeans are quite good yeah yeah but you just never know the do it's true it's just one of those things so you mentioned just before that you have been off the back of well not off the back of last week but you've been experimenting with context dependent tags in your to-do list <laughs> yeah yeah um it's so what i mean by that is like you have a bunch of stuff that like or a bunch of phone calls you need to make so you're like i know i'll tag them with phone or things that you need to do in a certain place so i'll tag them with like town or gym or like whatever and then you can obviously extend that to tagging it to, with certain people the trouble with all of this is that like and i think this is the art of setting a reminder is setting it at the time that when the notification comes through on your phone and i guess also probably the the problem with reminders and deadlines as well you get the notification of like oh remember you were going to do this if if that comes at a time when you can't action that thing then it just gets bumped anyway and like the reminder wasn't really it didn't really serve its purpose um, so I try not to use reminders. And if you're going to talk to someone about something, I will try to to tag them with the thing so that when I, spe I spe see that person, I'm like, oh, yeah, here are like the four things I need to to say to that person. The trouble is, like, I haven't built a habit to bring up the list. So I see the person. So, and this is, I mean, this is a frustration that I know you will feel. Apple Reminders have just added this feature or it might, it might not be that new, but it, when I last experimented with it, when you go to message someone, Apple Reminders will bring up reminders that are tagged with that person. Oh, that's cool. On the I top right of your screen. That. Yeah. So Apple Reminders have got location-based tagging. So I, I use location-based a lot. If I'm going to Glasgow, I'll have three or four reminders that will pop up. When I uh, and are, they in, are they in Apple Reminders? They're in TickTick, but um, both Apple Reminders and TickTick have this feature where... As you approach a city within a certain radius that you set, it'll say, oh, get in touch with John, get in touch with... Um, it's great. You don't have to think about it. The trouble with that is, like, how often do you go to Glasgow? Like, how often do you do you leave a radius that's, like, that relevant? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or you, you probably have plans if you're going to Glasgow, so you might not be able to fit it in, or it'll be a last-minute thing. But the the other one of... So you've got... This is not foolproof, but might help with your location-based or context reminder is, let's say you see Dan and you need to remember to ask him about where he got his tennis racket from. So His Puma trainers. His Puma say. trainers, yeah. 
So Love the Puma band. It's always wearing. You create Puma. some kind of visual overlap in your mind of a Puma trainer and Dan. So, and you make it as big and ridiculous as possible. So, you might imagine that Dan is like feasting on a Puma trainer, like with a knife and fork, and he's like stuffing it in his mouth or that he's wearing it on his head. Something that is ridiculous and sticks in your mind. Hold that in mind for seven seconds. And then, usually, next time you see him or you see a Puma trainer, that'll bring up the memory. You can be like, ah, oh, done. And you can even tell him for additional points. I've just had an image of you eating a Puma trainer in it. And here's why. Sounds yeah. like the headline of a bit of clickbait content, that doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, like, a great feature, for example, and this is something Apple could, could launch, is some kind of digital signature, which I'm sure all the devices have, that when you are in a certain radius of this person, ping you with, ping you with a reminder. Or, like, it might be a good use for Apple Tags, for example. Like when you're within a certain radius of someone else's Apple tag, hey, here's the three things you guys were gonna we're gonna talk about. Here's this question you need to ask them. I just think all these things are they're now possible, but they aren't features on any app. Um, first world problem. The next few generations of Apple apps start to really integrate this a lot more. Like for for calendar and reminders and contacts and everything to just become a lot more of a personal CRM. Because at the minute they kind of feel siloed. They're like bare bones versions of each of those apps. I don't know. You know, Apple Reminders is pretty good now. It, you gotta, it you is. Got to play around with the latest version. It's it's not bad, but they're they're deliberately trying to keep it non-competitive with the other apps on the App Store because that's where they make their profit from. So, so I, I, I think the only thing it wouldn't have for you is the ability to drag um, tasks to a calendar, which, to be fair, most most to-do list managers don't have anyway. But it, Apart, the only thing that Reminders doesn't have that Things has is the like the distinction between a deadline or a due time and a when I'm going to work on something time. That's it. If it had so that, I think that's the only thing that's missing from your workflow. But there's a there's a lot of features in TickTick, for example, of subtasks, comments, adding adding images, um, having quick quick add or quick search. Oh yeah. But I think. Oh yeah. But the, this is kind of the, like, if if Apple wanted to, they've got a bit of cash. They could plow some money into making a phenomenal reminders app or a mail app or whatever. Yeah, but I guess they don't. They have Memoji. Oh, yeah, every year they bring out something that's just like, oh, great. Thanks, Tim. I'm glad you've been spending the year working on that one. <laughs> I would pay a monthly subscription for Apple Mail Plus, Apple Reminders Plus. Same. The trouble is, like, you're going to have, there's going to be parts of it that both of us, it's not going to be the best app for both of us, is it? So you're left with this decision of, like, well, do I stick with the thing that I'm already paying for or do I move everything over to Apple? What am I moving over to Apple for? Mm. Like, I use Apple Notes and I think so do you because it's it's simple, right? It's kind of got everything you need for a Notes app. Yeah, it's it's funny because Apple Notes is like the, the forefront example because I took the hit on features from Evernote and from Notion and things so that we could get the speed and the the integration of Apple Notes because it's just fully that, built into that like text and, recognition thing now that they have where you press a button and it open the text the input now just becomes a window that you can scan over text and it ports it into the note like stuff like that's pretty cool isn't it that's yeah. them that's them trying to innovate and catch up with 
other apps that serve a similar purpose. It's true. And a lot of people nerd out on note-taking apps for features that are like so peripheral or so more just masturbatory, they don't actually add anything to your core workflow. And I think being able to quickly create a note and find a note are really 99% of what you need in an external brain app. I've been playing around with an app yesterday and today, actually, uh, that I think was recommended on... Uh, it was in a comment section of something, maybe one of our podcasts or Modern Wisdom. Um, it is called... I don't know what it's called. How do I find out what it's called? I could see the label. This is turning this, out to be a brilliant story. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> look at that. Look how... There we go. So it's a, it's a Pomodoro app that's like... Um, very simple. Someone said something in a comment saying like, oh, this app is brutal. I was like, well, that sounds interesting. I'm going to find oh, out what well, that I means. I did see that post. Um, productivity challenge timer is what it's called. I think we've been funneled. I think it was an ad because I've seen that as well. No, it was definitely a comment on, unless it unless the comment is an ad. But it was definitely now as a result. Oh God. It was definitely yeah. a comment on a, on a YouTube video. I think it might've been life hacks that was saying like, Oh, I use this and it's really brutal. Right. Um, but it's just quite interesting because it shows you, because look at these, uh, see how long it takes for that to get those analytics um shows you what the percentage of time you spend on each each task and all that sort of stuff and it's just really simple and quite like the thing that's funny about it is um, when you like start a break it says like are you enjoying delaying the task that you have to do like are you enjoying being a an unrepentant slacker you know it just like takes the mick out of you all the time which is quite i quite like the sort of tongue-in-cheek like constant piss taking <laughs> that is great so I've been playing around with that the last couple of days. Well, speaking of analytics, have you seen that calorie labels are now added onto restaurant foods? I'm trying to find an article on it, but I'm using... I've, I've always enjoyed the way that you say restaurant. Restaurant. You say like a resta restaurant. Restaurant. <laughs> Which I think is the correct... I think that's like properly pronounced. Um just feels very thorough. I've always, always noticed it. Never I, brought it up with you. Never mentioned I'm, it. I'm very grateful for that, Johnny. Thank you. Um, calorie labels, resta restaurant. Restaurant. There we are. Got it. It will cost restaurants thousands of pounds because they'll have to find a, a bro lifter who goes to pure gym and... Um, so you do all the mark rules. To, yeah, enter it all into my fitness pal. So <laughs> under new rules, large food and drink businesses in England with 250 or more employees must display calorie information of non-prepacked food and soft drinks. Okay. And they will be creating a system to accurately check that the chefs aren't lying about the calories. So here it is. Calories now appear on menus in large restaurant chains. So it looks like large food and drink businesses with 250 or more employees must display calorie information and they will be creating some kind of system to make sure that chefs accurately use it, which is probably they'll be bringing in a guy who trains at Pure Gym to enter it all into my fitness pal and double check the mask. Scan the barcodes. So, and then they've got some, the classic BBC thing of getting some punters to be like, I like this and I don't. I don't like it. I like it. Yeah. 
And that's exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> because we're both dieting in some form at the moment. And we're going to have to wear multiple hats, I think, to comment on this. Because from the personal perspective, yeah, it's great. It's convenient. Next time I go to a restaurant, I don't need to, you know, fish it out on the, the user-generated database of my fitness pal. I'm more likely to get an accurate measure and hit my macros. But that's not the whole picture. Yeah, I think the... So both of us, the way that both of us eat or follow a diet is like pretty much as long as we hit our macros, we can kind of eat whatever we want unless you've gone keto without telling me or anything like that. But, you know, I think we're both fairly similar in that respect. So one of the challenges with that, or probably the, well, two challenges, one is hunger um, and, and hunger and adherence. And the other one is like, how do I get ac access to the data for when I'm outside the constraints of like weighing and measuring things at home? So if I go to a restaurant or I, I go and eat out, and I eat, I eat a meal at that restaurant, and I'm trying to fit that into my calorie-managed diet, how do I guess, right? How do I know what the chef's done? How much oil, butter, sauce has been included? That's historically been, for both of us and clients we've coached, probably like the biggest problem, the biggest obstacle to being successful, consistently successful and accurate with a flexible dieting approach. Very um, much. To, to the so, point where you either say just write it off and go back to your normal calories the next day, create a calorie sink where the day before you reduce the calories and just hope that somehow you'll balance out or to overestimate, to just yeah. put in double the calories that you think it's going to be, all of which are suboptimal. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I've had messages from people saying, like with a photo of a meal and them saying like, what do you think the macros are on this? It's like, you know, you can you can look at the individual component parts of the meal and try and come up with an estimate, but probably you're going to be wrong. Um, and, and I think we've always erred on the side of, as you say, like as long as you're prudent with your guess, then it doesn't really matter that you're better to overshoot than undershoot when it comes to, to calorie restriction. So from that perspective and from the perspective of people who track macros, who people who are already trying to figure out what those numbers are, what the macronutrient and the calorie numbers are, having them freely available is only gain, like only improvement, because all we're trying to do is figure out those numbers anyway for our own benefit. And we'll just come up with something, whether it's right or wrong. So us being told what they are is, a, is an improvement for sure from that perspective. Yeah. However, I imagine that government policy did not have us and our clients in mind as the people to try and impact with this policy that's a good point isn't it i wonder who they do have in mind well they, they, this is this is the crux of it i think that the people they had in mind because they're trying to reduce the overall obesity burden of the country mm. now i would posit that people who go out for a meal usually are not in a mindset of i'm going to try and restrict my calories today yeah. apart from us weirdos and and our clients mm. so if you're trying to get the average Joe who doesn't think about calories normally to think about it then when they're supposed to be having a good time, I don't think it's going to be that effective. On the flip side, the reason that people are kicking off about this is because if you are overly restrictive, if you suffered from an eating disorder, then that's going to disproportionately affect you. By putting calories broadly on the label, it's going to affect the wrong target audience. And in the wrong direction, possibly. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that point of like, so this is just in restaurants, right? Like restaurants and cafes, anything with over how many? 25? 250. 250. Okay, wow. So, <laughs> wow. So, so quite a lot of small independent restaurants are exempt anyway. I think so. I wonder if they're going to introduce it, but I imagine it's a proper administrative ball ache to get small but, restaurants to do it. But, but certainly like every chain, every like relatively big restaurant, cafe, bar, whatever that you find in multiple cities, they're now going to have all the calories on the menu of everything you'd have. So I think you're absolutely spot on when you say the time that you're sat in like all bar one, the city center, because you've gone for like a, a, a beer and a burger with your friends. Like, yes, it's nice to know, I guess, if you're tracking your calories, how many calories are in the burger, but that's not really the time to be like, that's not the behavior that's going to dictate the success. It's the problem is like, well, if you're always having the burger or bar one, then that's the thing that's going to, that's the problem, right? The frequency of that and everybody else, like you can, you can focus on the calories and the packets of food and when weigh and measure things at home, 80% of your week, 90% of your week and the times when you out and about probably that's probably not the time to focus on it so yeah it's it's an interesting uh i never really looked at it through that lens but i don't really apart from really us i don't really know who else it's helping yeah it provides a, a benefit to our convenience probably mm. won't impact the obese the national obesity burden much because i don't think that's the the real cause of no it's um, not of obesity yeah, yeah. and the the other lens that i hadn't seen it through which our, our friend sadie highlighted which was that if you're going out with a group of friends and you all know that one of you has an eating disorder and you're trying to be kind of nice to them and then you know you go oh can we have the calorie menu for for her please and it just shines the the spotlight on it just makes everyone feel worse about it and it's mm. it's a trying to even though it's probably has good intentions it just makes more of a more of a kerfuffle around the whole thing so she was saying there are people who go to restaurants specifically to kind of shut out that noise and just just enjoy it mm. at which point you can say let's have a mixture of calorie and non-calorie menus and we can just pick ourselves and make it a low pressure situation well to be honest i think like so the way that i would tackle this now like it, and this is really why the to me the the tune that 250 employee number is so relevant because if i if i went to a chain restaurant now um I would just look it up on their website and most of them have their calories listed on their website. So like if you want to find it, yeah, it's a bit of a faff, but you usually can find it. Yeah. If you want to Nando's or Wagamama or whatever, yeah, Wagamama there, probably has it on the menu. It may, it may well do. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, you're right. Like Pizza Hut, Pizza Express, Nando's, like all these things you'd see on a high street that I assume these rules are applying to, the calories are already available. Well, that, that shows. And I've seen you do that multiple times, like look up, the calories in a restaurant meal before we go that just shows that they're hitting the wrong target audience because anyone who they're trying to get that information in front of won't have already looked it up on the website yeah. in the first place yeah and probably won't care the other major issue and this is just a bigger picture and much more on the mark in terms of what's causing the obesity crisis is something dr mike mentioned recently why is it that having a burger and chips is a two and a half thousand calorie meal? It's excessive. Like there are certain meals now that, and it's become this kind of food porn fetishization thing where it's like, it's not just a burger. It's a burger that's been 
deep fried in cheese and has avocado and nachos on top with peanut butter. And you're like, does it have to be that gratuitous? And it's almost like an arms race of restaurants trying to outdo each other with, it's becoming more American. I don't know. I, I kind of think that should exist. Because like, if you want to have that, then like the, if the goal is to influence people's behavior, to try and manage obesity, then them having like an occasional two and a half thousand calorie burger, like that's not the, that's not the issue really, is it? And, and equally like influencing someone's behavior in a restaurant is also not really the issue. I assume for most people anyway, There's like not it's many not people that just eat out in restaurants. They're just, yeah, it's all the Nando's they're having and that's what's causing the calorie surplus. The other problem with, so, so I kind of, I, I see Dr. Mike's point that like, you know, you, you, you'll see things on a menu that you maybe would have chosen previously. And now it says two and a half thousand calories. Is, is it that like, it's the two and a half thousand calories, it's the problem. And it should be 1500 calories because you could take a lot of the calories out of it. Or is it that now the person can't eat that without enjoying it or they feel guilty about it or, or whatever. But equally, like if you imagine you knew nothing about calories and nutrition and you went into a restaurant and you saw a meal and it said 900 calories on it, it's very hard to know what to do with that. Like, is that a lot? Is that not a lot? Well, if you haven't like, got a calorie target, you're just like, okay. Yeah. Like, like, is that good good or bad? And good, good or bad relative to what? Like, relative to how much you ate earlier, how much you ate the day before, like what, what you're trying to, are you trying to maintain your weight, gain weight? It, it's very, it's just like giving people a snapshot piece of information that's only really relevant in, which is also what the problem with like a sugar target is right like if you say oh eat less sugar but someone's carbohydrate intake is through the roof it kind of doesn't really matter if they don't have sugar in their tea this is a, it's a similar kind of problem that if you if you just highlight the calories of that one meal that you're eating tonight but someone ignores the calories for the rest of the day then it, it's a piece of information in isolation that doesn't really achieve what they're trying to do yeah it's trying to push a a cortical override of like, oh, well, that number is bigger than that number. So I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go against my my visceral urges to eat more food when really the, the, the reason that this works is, the reason that obesity has become a problem in the last 50, 60 years is because food has become engineered to become so palatable, so available, so convenient, and so cheap. So we, it's easier to go to McDonald's and get, a meal that's 1500 calories and have that twice or three times a day than it is to cook your own home meals and probably yeah. cheaper as well. So if that becomes a habit, then that's the real problem. But that's not, not going to be solved by a sticky plaster on, on top by saying, oh, well, we'll just display the calories and then keep everything else as it is. Yeah. Keep that hyper palatable, cheap, convenient food <laughs> in the same amount of supply, but just make people feel a bit worse about it. Yeah. So I, I actually had a, within the context of we're both dieting, I had a, um, a McDonald's drive through at the weekend with Becca. I've not had McDonald's food in quite a while. And I ordered um, a chicken wrap and some chicken selects. So I had, see if you can, you, you have a, have a, whoops, you have a crack and see if you can guess the calorie Whoa, total. Okay. okay, so five, five chicken selects and a, bar, a chicken and bacon barbecue fried chicken wrap. Excuse my ignorance. What is a chicken select? Like, how big is it? Like, so, I, I guess um, it's not it's not a chicken nugget. It's more similar to a bit of chicken you get from KFC. Like oh, that's a, quite big. 
Oh well, okay. maybe I've said the wrong thing then. Like it, a boneless piece, or a like a it's a boneless piece, yeah. Okay, not just it's a big a quarter of a chicken. It's like a chicken, like a chicken goujon. But okay, a big one. Five chicken goujons. Let's say they are 180 to 250 calories each, depending on the size, and a chicken wrap, which I'm gonna guess is 350 to 450 calories. So you said about meal. 1300, something like that. Yeah. So it's a, it was about a th- just a bit over a thousand. So you weren't far off. You were slightly over on the chicken selection, slightly <laughs> under on the wrap. But the point is, you would have put in an entry that wouldn't that would have still got you to your goals. Isn't that nice to know? Yeah, that is nice to know. <laughs> it's almost like been tracking for a while. I know. But the the point is, is that like, um, I, I finished eating that, looked at the calories on the website, and had this feeling of like having been served an injustice for how hungry I still was uh, yeah. for the amount of calories I'd just eaten. That wasn't worth it. Yeah. Rubbish. And that's when you start like longing for like, God, if I just had like a big bowl of like dry potato and chicken and vegetables, I'd be stuffed. If I'd had 1,200, 1,300 calories of that, I like would be on the sofa unable to move. But actually I've just sort of like snuck that past my satiety signals and they didn't even know it happened. This is where at the drive-thru, you're like, do you want anything else? Do you need sides? And you're like, have you got any cauliflower? Such a... apple pie. I'll just have two apple pies. Oh, I bet you could just inhale them as well. And... Well, that's the problem with being in a calorie deficit, isn't it? It's like, like really the, the, the boundaries that normally exist for when you would normally stop eating get moved further and further and further so that you could just keep going, especially with very hyperpalatable food. Well, this is why in my last mass phase, I wish that I'd just eaten one extra almond croissant every day that would yeah. have completely solved my calorie problems so this is the like tr- to track or not to track debate isn't it because if you tracked then you would know that all i need to do is like track my food and then throw an extra almond croissant and you could precisely manage a moderate surplus with almond croissants <laughs> but so i think go on well you you can you can eat one of them and 10 minutes later, it's as if you've not eaten anything. You can yeah. still eat as normal. It was actually Fl- part of like my year's resolution or like my year's reflection for 2021 was if I just stopped multitasking and ate an extra almond croissant every day, I'd be closer to my goals across the board. Yeah, now they're an enemy. So I think the conclusion is, apart from <laughs> out of the, the hostile forces, um, the conclusion we've reached is apart from people who already know that they want access to the information and probably therefore already either have access to the information or as Yusuf has just demonstrated are pretty damn good at having a crack at guessing anyway it's not really helpful for anyone so like either it's giving someone a single it would be it, it's like someone saying this costs 400 pounds but you don't know how much you earn you don't know how much you've got in the bank account you don't know what, what your other bills are and someone goes is that expensive I don't know <laughs> You're like, well, I better get the three hundred pound one. But you could be, you could be a millionaire, and I have no idea. So it, you know, it's an isolated piece of information without the context. It doesn't really mean anything. And also, for most people, if you're going out to a restaurant, that's the time that you probably don't want to think about that stuff. Um, whether that's because there's a like a, a background of, of an eating disorder, and you've, it's something you've struggled with, and you don't want to be faced with that information for personal reasons, or you're just out to have a good time with your friends. And being told that the burger's got two and a half thousand calories in, like it's not going, you're not going to, it's not going to make you enjoy it more. 
it's going to make you feel guilty about it, even on a slight, on a, on a moderate level. And it's probably not, it's not sufficient enough information to actually influence your behavior. It's just, oh, by the way, probably shouldn't have done that. What percentage of your total calories in a month are from eating out? Probably less than 5%. Yeah. So realistically, it's kind of neither here nor there. So I just think the target audience, it's not achieving the goal that it's trying to. It's just making people who don't need any more hypervigilance and hyper-awareness of, of this fact mm. even more stuffed in their face and making them feel kind of shameful about it. I wonder whether they do any like test retest, like whether there's any like assessment going on. It's like, we're going to put this intervention in place and are they going to measure, like they can't, not everyone's not tracking their body weight, are they? So what are they, like obesity related illness? But there's, there's so, such a lag effect of that stuff oh, that you, yeah. you would never be able to tell. There's no, there's no way to close that feedback loop. It's just a bit of shit. There's a great book called Nudge. Uh, yeah, concept about making smaller changes. So things like if you, I think it's in New Zealand where they make margarine pink, just to, just to, to make influence go, behavior. That's mm. that's not very natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess maybe that is the rationale. Um, but I think as we as we've kind of discussed, I don't think unless someone's very like clued up and aware anyway. Um, but you know, oh, well, if I pick the 800 calorie option, then that's me going over my calorie target for the day. Um, then it's not helpful anyway. Um, it's why, it's why people like James Smith and the information that he puts out and the kind of the constant analogies and liking calorie management to finance management. And, you know, you consume less than, than you, than you expend and you, you lose weight and vice versa, creates a general awareness of managing those numbers your 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 output and your input and the balance between the two because i think without that context these pieces of information aren't really helpful so it's it's like feeds into a system but how many people operate with that system in the first place and how many people just see it as like god 900 calories is so many calories even though they maybe had 1500 calories at lunch but they were at a restaurant that only had 249 employees so they didn't know <laughs> maybe we'll see a rise in restaurants that have 249 employees sack people that's the second order consequence isn't it <laughs> so we have a qu i'm very pleased about this a question from Matt. Hey guys, this is Matt McLeod here, and I just wanted to first say that you're welcome for using the correct channel this time. Um, but I wanted to ask you guys how to optimize your scaling for digital courses. Uh, so more along the lines of the build once, sell twice, Jack Butcher model. Yusuf, I know you're very familiar with this. Um, however, I've got quite a few one-to-one -one coaching clients, um, and I don't want to hire more coaches. I don't want to go the membership route. I would love to build a lower tier course and then potentially, which I already have, which is the Fat Loss Accelerator. It's my six-week course after my initial... 10-day uh, challenge. They are upsold into the Fat Loss Accelerator, which is a six-week course. But then I would also love to create a 
flagship course um, that would be maybe even more extensive in the $500 to $1,000 range that could be six months, year long, something like that. However, I just want to remain a company of one for the most part uh, and try to scale using digital courses and leverage primarily uh, organic content, ads, and email marketing. All right. Thank you. See ya. Nice. Okay. So, good, good question. Very much. So, in in summary, well, Matt, thank you for using the thank you, Matt. The, the speak pipe, which is the tool that we have on our website, where you can ask us a question. That's what Issa calls his phone. <laughs> I'm just gonna have a little <laughs> speak pipe. So, yeah. The in short question is: How can you scale a digital offering while staying as lean as possible? Out some kind of upsells on the back end um, but without having to hire more coaches and um, and create more of a messy business and I think he said he wanted to avoid uh, so he's got he has one to one coaching clients now um, he wants to avoid a membership option and he wants to just sell like low ticket and slightly mid ticket one off transactions one off courses how do you scale that with ads email marketing and organic is that the question yeah. So, and Jack Butcher, for people who don't know who Jack Butcher is, who's Jack Butcher? He is a designer who has got into leveraged product creation, digital marketing, and he's great. He's we we bought his course a while back. Um, he's just very much about this build once, sell twice mentality, and his core value offering is just kind of simplifying things visually. So he, he does a lot of quite nice design elements. Um, it's called visualize value, right? Yeah, and build one, sell twice as other okay. as other product. Separate, separate product, cool. So, what you're describing there, Matt, is a business model that a lot of big people in the industry use. Oh, maybe you've just felt a, a change in the force field there. Johnny has managed to change his t-shirt in that time, and the lighting. I'm still wearing the same one, and the lighting. I wonder what's happened. Basically, we had some technical problems halfway through that uh, that last episode. So let's just pick up where we left off, because obviously, from your perspective, there's been no time travel mm, at all. No time has passed. So the model that you're describing, Matt, is something that there's a couple of people in the industry use. Athlene X and Kino Body are two very successful people that have this kind of funnel where they've got large organic following. They sell a front-end product that's a one-off thing for about $50. It's usually a six-week program or something of that sort. Um, for Athlean X, it's very much kind of rehab-y type stuff, and it's got some physique stuff as well. So it's it'll be something with a defined remit, so like a back pain program or an arms program or something. They would either be upsold, laterally sold, or sold onto a, some, some kind of low-end continuity thing. And that's all done through their nurture sequence and email funnel. So it can be done. Obviously, the problem is that they can make it work because they have huge organic followings and they don't need to worry so much about cost per acquisition of a customer. But if you don't have a close to infinite pool of people to to draw from, then you run into the issue of exhausting your audience and having to start running ads. And at that point, I don't think we've ever been able to, to consistently get a £50 one-off product 
to work purely through ads. I think you, you you hit the nail on the head really where it's 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 two or there's three numbers really to look at. So one of them is the the cost to acquire a customer through an ad channel if you wanted to go down that route. The other one is the day one cash, so the transaction value on the first transaction. And then the third number is the the lifetime value of that person. Right. So those are the numbers you can play with. As you said, someone like Athlean for example, Keto Body initially, um, or even like some of the, the modern day like influencers on on social media, they can sell something for or or Jack Butcher, right? Jack Butcher, because I believe his it, it's mainly organic his following, right? He doesn't sell it with ads, yeah. I think. Correct? Yeah, correct. So like he can do that because there is no cost to acquire, right? Or the cost to acquire is his time. And through the, a lot of these platforms like YouTube, like a podcast, or even like Twitter, really, once something's off, it's off. Like once a video is getting a million views, it's going to keep getting views and you'll keep making sales. And it's pretty much 100% gross profit, right? In other words, there's no there's no cost associated with fulfilling that service or with selling that service, with selling that product. So they can do that. They can do it at high volume. If you're going, If you're trying to do that with ads and you just run through the maths of it and say, well, these ad platforms charge you a CPM, so a cost per 1,000 impressions. That's like the cost of running ads on the internet. You can't really influence that number too much. That then determines your cost per click. And then your cost per click is really going to determine like what can you do with that. If you're paying one pound a click and you get a 1% conversion on your th- on your sales page, which is pretty damn good, by the way, it's going to cost you £100 or $100 to make a sale. If your product is £50, that's a £50 loss on day one. Right, so you're in the negative to begin with, which means the onus is on the back end of the business or something else to drive the lifetime value up. And also, if you do that at any kind of scale, you need to be able to sustain a fifty fifty pound or fifty dollar loss on every transaction that you make. In summary, if you are trying to run this this stuff with ads, there are really two options. One is to go down the high ticket route, right, because you're you're maximizing day one cash. That is very appealing. It gets promoted by a lot of coaches. I think there's a lot of downsides to it. We discussed that in other episodes. The other way to do it is to go after the, like just try and break even on day one, okay, or, or as close to break even as you can, deliver a really good service and have a recurring product that then builds at the lifetime value. And also you're pouring people into this model. So you require, you acquire 30 customers for three grand, let's say, or six grand in total. But those people then pay you monthly over and over and over and over again. That's why we arrive at that that situation. Like that's why that's what we teach, um, and that's you know, I think I would I would look at it Matt, as like rather than I want to make this model work, view it as I want my business to look like this, or I want my income to be this, or I want my lifestyle to look like this. What's the most efficient model to achieve that outcome? Rather than like I'm desperate to run a course based business because you yeah, could, but it's just exactly. going to be incredibly we're, difficult. We're not going to throw rocks at at our enemies and say that high tickets shit or low tickets shit or whatever it's simply that there are a set of parameters that would make a business work with this kind of athlete next model and that is you've either got a large pool of organic leads that you can constantly rotate and sell sell stuff to i.e doing it without ads and so your margins are close to zero so you're not running into this problem that johnny said of your cost per acquisition of a customer is 100 pounds but you're selling a 50 pound product and therefore you've got to make sure the average customer pays twice what they pay on the on the front end which is a scary situation the other condition is that you've got massive balls Mm. and you don't mind 
losing on the front end. Well, I'm loads of cash. Yeah, the third condition. You've uh, you predicted it well. So is that you've got a very large pool of cash that you can you can afford to just sink in the at the front of the the funnel. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. You know, the if you look at the Bezos model, he ran a multi hundred million dollar loss for about. 10 years before Amazon started to become profitable. So, you know, if you can, the, the person who can pay the most to acquire a customer wins. And if you can afford to just absolutely sink cash into something in the front end to to acquire a strong customer base, then great. But I don't think either of us have got the stomach for that. I think you have to really know what you're doing. It also, it still places the onus on like, so in, with the, if, whether all these like SaaS businesses or software companies that acquire a load of funding up front, plow a lot of that funding into development and, and marketing to acquire customers. It's with the view that they're acquiring monthly recurring income, right? Or that those customers have a value long-term. If you if you acquire a list of 100 people who, pay, who buy a 50 quid thing, but you made a 50 quid loss on every single transaction, that's only good if you have something else to sell them and they want the other thing, right? Otherwise, you just spent loads of money for no reason. Spend loads of money for loads of effort and loads of faff and maybe some happy people, but you can't live off that, right? So interestingly with, with Kino Body, he, I don't know whether he still does, but for a period of time, he did run ads to his products. And when he started running ads to his products, he changed the funnel to, so we, we bought a few of Kino Body's products and they're, they're very good, but the, you'll think, oh, I'm buying a 37 pound Warrior Shred program or whatever. You buy that and then it's, well, do you want this as well? Do you want my abs program? Do you want my cardio program? Do you want my supplement guide? Do you want? And then suddenly he's trying to sell you supplements. He's trying to sell you apparel, right? All in. I mean, the, it's not going to work without minutes. supplements. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all within minutes of of clicking buy on the first thing. Um, why is he doing that? Because he's up against like what is my even with an ads agency running his marketing, even with a funnel is highly highly optimized. I still have to pay a certain amount of money to acquire a customer, and if I'm in the red on that transaction, I'm using business reserves to fund that. And that's for, for businesses like these, like for, for small businesses with a few people in them doing like a couple of hundred thousand or like up to a million a year, you don't really want to be in the situation where you're eating into cash just to, to acquire sales really, if you can avoid it. Cause you don't, you don't need to. So we've, we've covered the, the cons of doing the low end front uh, tripwire offer effectively or the high ticket stuff in one of the previous episodes what's the what's the solution it's the middle ground so going for a mid ticket program where you might be selling six weeks up front you can break even on the front end or you can make a small profit on the front end knowing that especially in your case matt i know that the stuff you put out is fantastic and so you've got a very high retention rate very high amount of trust that you've built with people and so they're more likely to to stay for longer and then as you get more and more people through there you acquire more data becomes more reliable knowing okay the average person stays for 10 months then you've got a couple more variables to play with you can either increase the price on the front end you can do what you can on the delivery side to make people stick around for longer and we cover that in one of our uh, modules behind the paywall in the in our top secret black ops business program um, on how to improve your retention rates. Or you can play around with how much someone pays up front. And then you can start to scale with ads more confidently. Yeah. Um, so that like 
I suppose we're biased, aren't we? Because that's what we teach. So obviously we think that's the best way of doing it. But I think... But we've tried the low end and both, the high end. The others, yeah. It's not as if we we just think, ah, oh, throw a dart at a map and think that'll do. There's just cert- there's certain things that you can't... Um, you can't really influence beyond a certain baseline threshold. And, and one of those things is like how much a Facebook ad costs, really. Like you can influence that a bit, but you're not going to be getting like one penny clicks, right? So you, you have to, you're up against this. Like I'm probably going to be paying, if I'm pretty good at this, I'm probably going to be paying one to two pounds a click from, a, from someone who's interested in what I'm doing. So what are you going to do with those clicks? That's the question, right? What is the most efficient way to maximize the value of those clicks for your business today and over a five, 10 year lifespan? And I think if you just, if you're boring like me and you find this sort of thing exciting, then get a <laughs> get a spreadsheet out. You know the, you know what the cost per click is. Figure out what has to happen in each of those models. Like if you want to make 10 grand profit, let's say, look at all of the models and figure out what's it what's the most efficient way to make 10 grand profit and then divide the profit by the hours required to maintain the system and the highest hourly rate that's the one to go with right and that's why i mean if, you, if you're going to argue that like you don't want to optimize for revenue per hour then i just i think there's like something fundamentally missing in, in what you're trying to do but that's why high ticket has problems that's why low ticket has problems that's why this middle ground is the highest throughput most efficient way of doing things yeah, I think people get the dollar signs when they see testimonials of people claiming that they made 20 or 30 grand from high ticket model. But remember two of those variables that I mentioned there, which is retention, extremely low with high ticket because mm. you've blown your load early. It's very hard to try and deliver on that and for someone to re-sign up again. And then the hourly rate, you you end up having to spend quite a lot of hours on a client that's spent high ticket. You can't just leave them with an automated members portal because they could go somewhere else and get that for £20. I wrote an email with an analogy in that I'll share just on the high ticket thing. I actually heard it from another coach. I really liked it. <clears throat> but imagine you, you and I went to, go and, we went to stay in a hotel next week and it was five stars, super premium like it, it was we'd really push the boat out and we stayed in this hotel and you got there and you go into the foyer and there's no one there it's a self-service check-in and you're like that's a bit annoying but like, that's okay <laughs> and then you expect people to like come and take your bags and give you a service none of that you got to go upstairs get in the room no coffee machine no shortbread tv's oh, average no shortbread no shortbread and it gets worse no no shortbread you go downstairs there's not really a restaurant. There's no breakfast included. There's no pool. There's no slippers. There's no dressing gown. Five-star hotel. You'd be like, what the hell is this? Oh, you're taking the piss. This is unbelievable. I mean, you had to rub salt in the wound after the shortbread. I come down and there's no slippers as well. So. No slippers. So straight away you're thinking like negative trip, trip advisor review. Maybe want my money back. Never staying here again. You would, you'd probably go out of your way. Like while you were there, if I wasn't there, you'd probably text me to tell me how bad it was right even though it's like on the face of it it's not that bad but the customer experience is a function of expectations versus what's delivered exactly so well so now if you'd paid 30 quid for that well hang on now flip the script and imagine that we'd just we'd pulled off the a1 because we're tired first hotel we could find it's one of those budget hotels you go in and it's largely the same but you go into the room 
and there's some slippers. There's some shortbread, maybe breakfast included. He'd be oh, like, oh, mm. this is incredible. Like, I can't believe that everything else might have been exactly the same. Right. <laughs> but because what we paid determined our expectations, we had, we, it turned the same experience into something. Or rather, the five star hotel has to do everything right. Like they can't get anything wrong to just meet our expectations. What do they have to do to exceed them? It's insane, right? Whereas the budget hotel or the affordable hotel, they stick a pair of slippers in the room. Positive reviews. Bob is your uncle. Bob is your uncle. I pissed all over your story there. I you, might be the person you just, who tells the punchline yeah, before. Here I come. <laughs> Matt, thank you for your voice message. You've, you've really made our week with sending that. Yeah, you have. If anyone else could follow suit now that Matt has broken the seal, Matt has, has taken one for the team. It's not that scary, is it, Matt? You know? So, sure is. Uh, how does any no, people don't know that Matt isn't a stooge that we've we've paid? We've slipped him a fiver so that we can tell stories about shortbread. Maybe we need like at the start of these episodes, like a like a Darren Brown disclaimer where we say like, "What I do is perfectly legitimate. There is no stooges, no actors involved in this. Everything you see is a combination of misdirection and magic." Like we need that at the beginning, so that when we do the voice notes, people are like, "Oh yeah, okay. Well, you, you said at the beginning there's no actors, so I can send a voice note too." Yeah, because. I mean, I, so luckily, I can we can say hand on heart that we've never done the classic influencer thing of like a lot of you have been asking me about my morning routine. No one's asked you about your morning routine. <laughs> I get asked all the time. You mean you thought this morning? God, I need a video to post. Better imagine that I've been asked this question. <laughs> so I post a video of me weighing out my broccoli and saying, "Here's what I eat in a day." No one cares. Yeah. No one's asked you that. Yeah. Lots of love. Are we finished? I think so. This is a really drawn out, painful. People are probably sat there going like, is this episode going to keep going? And then they maybe check their phone, check on Spotify, go, no, there's only like 10 seconds left. Are they really, is it really going to end like this with this kind of watery, petered out ending? And you know what? You're right. That's exactly what's about to happen. Any minute now, we'll say bye and that'll be it. Are you ready, guys? Here we go. Bye. Bye. Want to learn more about the systems we use to run, build, and scale propanefitness.com? Head over to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast and you can get your hands on our free training that covers the seven steps that we take with every client that we help build their own online business and also the seven steps that we use to successfully build Propane Fitness. We walk through the sales systems, the delivery systems, follow-up, remarketing, how to basically build your program so that it delivers coaching to your clients without you being there 24-7. We really do cover the full thing, right? And if you want to continue even further and potentially work with us, there's a chance to book in a call to have an informal chat with Yusuf or I to just basically see if any of our programs would be a fit to help you get from where you are to where you want to get to. So go to propanefitness.com forward slash business podcast today and get access to that. If you'd like to learn just more about Yusuf and I, more about us, what we do, follow us on the various channels, the best place to go is our YouTube channel. We have a load of stuff from fitness content, productivity content, why Yusuf slept on the floor for several months, why he's been having cold showers. There's always stuff on there that's entertaining and hopefully informative. So just go to YouTube, search for Propane Fitness, and you can find out a bit more about us there as well. Speak to you on the next episode.